millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you doing there? It is David. It's podcast time. John and I are sitting here and he's just... Wishful thinking. That's what I'm doing. I'm wishful thinking. You're gutting for a scoop, aren't you? I'm waiting for Arthur to open up. Arthur McKenna's Dunleary. Well, Arthur... You know what you got to do? Open it. But do you know what I hate? That expression, wet pub. If, Why? Because. It feels kind of dirty to me or something. Well, no, know? but that pub, you know, who came up with this expression, wet pub? You know, it's a horrible expression. And it's a kind of, it demeans generations of publicans down through Irish history who only had wet pub and potatoes. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was actually King's Crisps in pubs. Well, it's a very, very important distinction. We, and the reason being, you know why? Because King's Crisps are saltier than Tate. They're made by the same manufacturer, but they're saltier. So if they're saltier, you'll drink more. A mine of information. There you are now. There he is, the head himself, mine of information. So what's the crack? All good? All good. Just waiting for the boozers to open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm done with this lockdown malarkey. I really am. But I am looking forward to, but I am kind of, yeah, I am just looking forward to getting back to normal life. Yeah. But as we've discussed, there is no such thing as normal anymore. Do you know what annoys me? And I'm not going to be yours annoyed from Kildare. Left right. to the, but it's the amount of people I have talked to and heard saying they will not take the vaccine. Really? I met a couple of people. Really? I was walking down Dunleary Pier the other day, met a couple of people walking the other way, people you'd expect to say, yeah, I'll take the vaccine. I was saying, look, I can't wait till this thing's up and out. and well, almost in the shops. The vaccine's yeah. in the shops, right? Plus people saying, well, I don't know about that. Why? I don't know. Notions. No, I just know, but it, wor- notions. it worries me. We should make it mandatory. Absolutely. It should become like, as we spoke about before, like the MMR. Yep. You know, there's, there, there's no playing around here. and There's no room for this kind of, oh, well, I'm not really sure. And notions about purity and conspiracy theories. I've, I've no time for that in, in this, in this particular By the way, situation. John actually loves a conspiracy theory. It's actually part of his stock and trade. Anyway. I do. I um, do, I do. What are we talking about? What's on your mind? We're talking about living spaces you know, and dead spaces. That's what we're talking about. Do you know what is it always interests me, John? You talked last week about your anniversary, your wedding anniversary. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that has always interested me driving around Ireland, particularly in the countryside, I'm always drawn to Church of Ireland churches, old Church of Ireland churches <laughs> that have been abandoned. I nice. find them as actually one of the most beautiful architectural 
features in Ireland. Yeah. And I always yes, they are. And absolutely. what I like looking at is also the graveyards mm. in church. I, I love graveyards, right? Mm. And I love what graveyards tell you about places. Okay. And I love they tell you about the people who used to live there and the various different tribes and ethnicities and, you know, families who lived in these places. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about those Church of Ireland churches is so many of them are now abandoned. And so many of them have been transformed into homes or cultural spaces yeah. or offices, yeah. not least because they are a testimony to an idea whose time has passed. Like, you remember the place I got married in? Yeah, down in, in Roundstone. Yeah, so I got married in a very small Church of Ireland church uh, called St. Mary's in Roundstone. And it's really inconspicuous. You'd never see it. It's just slightly up on the hill, just behind the village. And I do remember uh, it was in such bad nick. It's a great place, but it was it's such great. bad nick. Such a great day. That when the rain came in, it came in this. Do you remember it came in the ceiling? <laughs> the church leaked up my wedding, which is kind of the way in which God and nature decided to anoint this marriage, which is still together after 20 odd years. But that particular church and churches like this. Yeah. I've always been interested in these places, John, simply because they're evocative of something whose time has passed. Yeah. So the Church of Ireland built, went on a massive drive in the last decades of the 19th century to convert Catholics, number one, and number two, to build churches in rural Ireland. That's where the expression taking the soup comes from. Mm, the soup yeah, takers are people yeah, who converted, right? Yeah, yeah. And those churches were built in the expectation of a congregation coming, right? Because they didn't build them because they thought they were going to be empty. They built them because they hoped a congregation would come, yeah. which never arrived. And they have become the sort of the legacy of an idea. But it's not just them. Do you remember when we were kids, there was a massive, massive building boom in churches, in Catholic churches, huge was, Catholic there, churches. There was, yeah, there was like, it, particularly in this area. There's one in Dean's Grange, there's one in Baker's Corner. But they're massive, like they are huge. Yeah. Like there's there's one warehouse kind of vibes. But did you know, they, they always remind me, there was kind of the only, the, the closest thing Irish architecture ever came to cubism. <laughs> right? It's fucking it's true, right. isn't it? It's like the one up And like, I remember you'd go to Mass and there'd be things that looked like Picasso. Jesus looking like Picasso <laughs> winking at you and there's some yeah. funny contorted shapes yeah. and everything. Um, but they, they are to, you know what they are? They are to Irish public architecture what Busiris is to public transport. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember those yokes, right? I do, huge, I do. Huge. I haven't been in one in a while now. They were built for a congregation. Imagine how confident the Catholic Church was in the 60s and 70s to build those in every estate. So every greenfield estate in Dublin, right, where there were kids and there were schools and there was population moving. They might, we might not have got a hospital, but we got a church. Who, who paid for those? Who always pays in the Catholic Church, Sean? But they, but they the didn't. little people! I know, but they didn't, if they didn't pay for it by connecting the Sunday plate that goes around and coins. Sure they didn't. The Catholic Church has been raising money from the locals in this country for a hundred years. I know that, but certainly now... And if you, imagine, you would... imagine you have a stream of income every week. This is lessons in the bond market. Lesson two, the bond market and the Catholic Church. Imagine you have a stream of income every Sunday yeah. from 20 masses in one of these big churches, right? So you're talking tens of thousands of pounds in old money, right? Yeah. So the stream of income coming to the Catholic Church every Sunday in Ireland was phenomenal, right? And imagine how much you can borrow against that using the bond market, okay? But you don't have to use the bond market. You can go, go to the yeah. bank manager. Now, 
bank managers in the 1960s were not going to refuse the Monsignor. <laughs> That's true. That is, is very true. Is overdraft, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Because they were the only gig in town, right? And if you think about it... And they're huge landowners. Huge well. landowners. But think about, again, come back to the idea of an idea whose time has passed. Those churches are now completely empty. Yeah. Completely empty, right? And, and the heating bill is shocking. And the heating bill is shocking, exactly, for the cubism, right? <laughs> but the thing is, John, architecture is sometimes the only evidence of a culture that has disappeared, like the pyramids, right? Yeah. Think, think about it. We go to see these things because they evoke an idea that has passed. Yeah. And I think in the future, the multi-storey car park was going to become the Protestant church of the future, okay? <laughs> like it, go on. That go basically, on. what we know about urban transport and the future of the city, John, is we know one thing is whatever the future of urban transport is, it will not be the car. It will not be the single occupant car driving in and out of the city. So therefore, it will not be the car park. The multi-storey car park is going to be a thing of the past. Mm. In fact, if I were owning a multi-storey car park, I'd probably sell now. Because right. what's going to happen? Think of just even what's happening around this part of the city. Bicycle lanes, people not using their cars, etc., etc. Over time, there's going to be less and less and less cars allowed in the city, yeah. number one. So obviously, multi-storey car parks are going to become a thing of the past. And the question then is, what do we do with them? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Like when you think about it, car parks, I don't actually spend much time thinking about it. I have to admit. Well, you know, the things I force you to think about in this but, podcast. But you're right. Though. Like when you, when you do think about it, they are actually in some of the prime locations in the centre of the city. And you know why, John? Why? Do you know why? It's Ireland. 
it's called a tax break. Okay, actually, there is, there is, you know the way you got these NGOs, right? Non-governmental agencies, yeah. right? You think like, you know, people who look after charities and poor people and famine. There's a great NGO in Ireland called the Irish Parking Association. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, they do sterling work. They, they do amazing work in the community, right? <laughs> right? Now, of course, what is at the root of car parks in Ireland are tax breaks. In 1995, this is a quote from the Irish Parking Association. In 1995, tax incentives were introduced for multi-storey car parks on a nationwide basis as part of the Finance Act section, if you want it, 344 of the Taxes Consolidation Act 1977, and which comprise of capital allowances, think about this, of 50% in respect of the construction of such facilities. Wow, right. 50%. So wow. before I talk about why this is or what happened, right? Yeah. Irish car parks are all, multi-story, are driven by a tax break. Now think about how that happens, right? When a government uh, sets out its plan for the nation, right? So you mm. vote in the government, you say, what's your plan? Not very high, I suspect, on the election materials we're going to build multi-storey car parks, <laughs> yeah. right? Knocking the door. What's Fianna Fáil going to do for me? Okay, we're going to build your car parks. Oh, jeez, you got my vote, right? So think about how Ireland works, John. Yeah, yeah. Somebody lobbied the Minister for Finance of the time in the mid-1990s to insert into the Finance Act, which is legislation, mm. that we are going to give capital allowances for car parks. So what it means, giving a capital allowance means we think... We need to give a capital allowance for this because we don't think it'll stand up on its own two feet. Yeah. So there's some ulterior motive that we think is good, like urban renewal or stopping well, dereliction, something positive. Yeah. There is nothing positive for building car parks except the enrichment of car park owners. Well, okay, can I just come at it from another angle? Because it was also a time when they were building lots of shopping centres. You know, like the Stevens Green Shopping Centre and all the rest. But in order to service that, they need car parks. Because, you know, people like to go in and shop and then load up their car rather than carrying lugging bags home on the bus and stuff. Well, we're going to come on to that. I have no problem with people building car parks, right? Mm. But I have a problem with the state reducing the cost of building car parks by as much as 50%. Well, that is That's what I have a problem. Right, right. And then I come back from that and say, why would that have been done? Mm. It's clearly not in the programme for government. Okay, you have like Brexit and you have big things like that, education system. You don't have car parks. So this is how Ireland works in a grubby little way. Somebody lobbies somebody to lobby somebody to lobby somebody Mm. to get something done. And that's it. Now, of course, the consequence of that, there are 400,000 car parking spaces in Ireland. Wow. That is a hell of a lot of cars. How many cars cars are there? I don't know, but there's 400,000 car parking spaces. If you look at our cities, right, there are, in Galway City, at least six major multi-storey car parks in the city. Galway is small. In Cork, there's at least 10. In fact, the ugliest building in Ireland is probably the North Main Street multi-storey car park in Cork. Have a gander on Google. I always thought (laughs) the ugliest building was uh, Liberty Hall. Yeah, it's pretty ugly. It's pretty ugly. It's good job it's full of communists, though, isn't it? <laughs> go on, yeah, go And on. there's probably about 20 at least in Dublin, one or two. Now, on the car park store, you might have heard recently, you know, South William Street in Dublin? Yeah. 
was going to be pedestrianised. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Yeah, okay? absolutely. Back of the, back of, you know, Grogan's Pub, all around Narrow there. Narrow street, the whole lot, yeah. That whole area should be, that whole area yeah. should be carpet. Why wasn't it pedestrianised, even though it makes complete sense? Because the Brown Thomas Street underground car park exit right. is on South William Street. And they, the people who own that, lobbied and said, you can't do this. Now, what I find amazing is if big societal or technical trends happen, notice we talked about the gale of creative destruction. Yeah, yeah. This is a bit like, for example, journalists saying, oh, it's awful, people are going online to get newspapers, so we have to stop that so that we can stay in a job. So think about journalism. It's, <laughs> right. it's been So the idea that we would genuflect to car park owners seems to me to be bonkers completely. But it is what it is. But actually, the big thing is that over time, car parks will become a thing of the past because people won't drive. In fact, speaking of underground car parks, mm-hmm. my son was saying that he thought they'd make great rave. <laughs> Of course, of course he did. So I wasn't, I wasn't going to pursue that as to why, which, which way he's thinking. But, but, but if you think about it, underground car parks. Yeah, it'd be brilliant. Anyway, so my point is... So it'd be actually good for growing mushrooms is the only other... Growing mushrooms, exactly, exactly, John, exactly. But again, this is all part of, John, the post-COVID change in the way in which we live, right? And all over the world, what you're seeing now is car parks which are the ultimate dead space, right, Mm. are being repurposed to become living organisms, living parts of the city. Now, in London, in Paris, in Berlin, in Miami, in Lisbon, car parks, multi-story car parks have been changed. In France, they are putting in farms, urban farms in the basement of car parks, okay? Yeah, yeah. In London, they've repurposed a huge one in Peckham into a sort of an entrepreneurial and cultural space, you know, for startups and entrepreneurs. In Germany, they're doing this idea in Berlin of the last mile depot. So basically you use the underground car park as a depot in order to get bikes to come in and transport goods around the city for that last mile or last 200 yards it could be, you know? In Miami and Lisbon, huge outdoor terraces. What's to their cars then? Have they, is there been a reduction in cars in the city as a result of that or? So if you look in Paris, Anne Hidalgo, the the mayor of Paris, has adopted the 15 minute city idea. And part of that is a significant reduction of cars. If you look at, for example, the, the best example for that is Amsterdam. In Amsterdam in the 1970s, if you look at photographs of Amsterdam in the 1970s, it was exactly like Dublin, full of cars. And then the Dutch started to ban cars and they started to bring in... I mean, bicycles, Dutch have always cycled, but nowhere near in the same proportion as they do now. Yeah. And there was a massive conflict between car owners and cyclists and people who wanted to use the urban space for something else. Mm. And so what you see is that in Holland... All those streets looked exactly like Dublin streets 40 years ago. And now they are completely car-free. So what the Dutch have basically said is the centre of the city is an unfriendly zone Mm. to cars, okay? And that's explicitly what we're going to do. This is the future of all cities. This is exactly what Copenhagen has done. This is exactly what's going to happen. And I think in Ireland, what we will see is the multi-storey car park is going to be repurposed into something really special because, as you said, these are in the centre of the city. Yeah, yeah. But as I said, 
because they were encouraged by tax breaks. And tax breaks, of course, reduces profoundly the cost to the builder, to the developer, and they can offset the capital. So if they spend a million, just say, just for, for purposes, yeah. a million quid, a million euros on the car park, they get half a million back in tax deduction. Yeah. So it, it means bonkers. But it means two things happen. There's also car park contagion, right? <laughs> right. Now think about it, because if your spreadsheet that you put in is contingent on getting tax breaks, you have to keep going. You have to keep generating the tax breaks. So you have to keep building car parks. So you overbuild car parks. That's the crazy thing about tax breaks, is once you put them in, they change completely the dynamic. Yeah. So in order to keep getting the tax breaks, you have to keep generating income in order to have income off which to get the tax breaks. So you've got to keep building the car parks. Okay, so so then that begs the question, why don't we reverse the tax breaks? So you get some sort of tax break to repurpose these you're, car parks. You're, but there's a couple of things that have to fall into place for all this to work. And that's kind of changing the way we shop changing our transport so there is an alternative and then we can repurpose the car parks. Are you all doing all at the same time? Look, if you if you look, it seems to me, right, that they're always everybody wants to go into the city. Everyone's socialized in the city. This is since humans have become urbanized. We became urbanized because we're social. Yeah. Right. If you go all yeah, the yeah, way yeah. back in history, right? But it's quite clear that there's a change in the way in which people are shopping. Now, there's an American shop called Bonobo. It's a men's outfitters, John. You and I should go to it. It's sort of perfectly sculpted. The drapers. Exactly, right? But what they're doing is they don't have any inventory. So imagine this. You go into the shop. You say, oh, I'd like those pair of jeans. Yeah. And the geezer says, okay, try them on. You try them on. The geezer says, okay, do you want them? He said, yeah. They tailor them there, right? Right. And they say, we will deliver them to your door tomorrow. So then they send a signal to a warehouse somewhere. Yeah. And then you don't, so you don't pick up the shops. So shop this, this is a little bit like the way Tesla work as well. You go to a I, Tesla. I wouldn't know, John. No, no, I would I. <laughs> but you go to it, apparently, you go to a, a, a Tesla shop, as it were. You have a look at it. You kick the wheels a bit. You jump in. You go for your test ride and go, brilliant. I love that. I'll take that. Grand. And it's delivered to you a month later because it's it's a shop front and that's all it is. It's a way of trying stuff on, testing stuff out, seeing because people love to touch and feel and yeah. smell and, you know, interact with the product they're just about to spend several thousand on, or even if you're talking about clothes and stuff. Because you spend several thousand <laughs> on, your, on your wardrobe, which is always the most high-end wardrobe. But it's not the place where they actually keep the stuff. That's the point. So yeah. if you if you imagine, right, imagine the way in which retail is going to change, right? So rather than have a shop front and then a massive warehouse in the back or in the basement or upstairs with all your kit, yeah. what you're actually going to have is a shop which is almost like a web portal. It's almost like a website. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, the yeah. shop is like a website. So then the things they're going to have to think is that the shopping experience is going to be totally different. So there's going to be coffee and fresh, you've a beer and yada, yada, yeah. all that stuff. There's going to be that whole experience. But what it means is that in the old days, you'd say, I need my car to go into town, to park in a car park, to bring the bags of the stuff that I have bought into my car to drive home. 
If, for example, retail is going the other way, it's doing the transport for you. So what retail is turning into is a transportation service as well as a shopping service. Right, yes. Right? So imagine this is the future. And then what we need to do is we need, we know we need to reinvent the city. Why do we have to reinvent the city? Because, again, this idea of going to the city to the office, remember we talked about this? Yeah, yeah. Is going to change. Not the office is going to close down, but it could be a blended week, this idea of going one week or one day a week or whatever, right? So how do we then get people into the city? What you do is you create both opportunities to live in the city, you stop dereliction, you create your heritage idea, you preserve your heritage, but you also say, look at these car parks. You know, we'll look back at them in 20 years' time and say, there was a time when they were full of cars yeah. from morning to night, totally dead spaces. <laughs> yeah, doing nothing. Just doing nothing, there. right? Yeah. And, and we'll say to our kids or our grandkids, amazing, these things were full of cars. And what you do is you say, let's turn them into bars, clubs, shops, apartments, if necessary, yeah. in, the, in the extreme. But the idea is to reimagine the city, you've got to think of... Every space has to be like a living hum of activity. It has to be this interconnected, complicated world of layers of people and ideas on top of each other, right? Yeah. And in order to do that, you've got to go all the way back, John, to history. So if you think of the city... Go on, yeah. Look, I know you're looking at me. I know, here we go. Come on, where are we going back to this time? We're going back. I tell you, I've been reading two books this week. Right. Right. One is a great book which I think I've told you about before, which is called Ulysses and Us. Right. The Art of Everyday Life in Joyce's Masterpiece by Declan Kybert. Now, what's always amazed me about Joyce was his love of the living city, right? Yeah. He loved to wander. Like the, the, you think about Ulysses is all about walking, strolling around. Yeah. A living city, Dublin, was his canvas, Right. And the great thing about this book is it's it's actually broken down into various chapters of thinking, eating, walking, oh, right? right okay. So look, at it. this is a great opener, right? A person's way of walking, whether the strut or the slouch, reveals a personality. So too with eating. How a man eats an egg, said Joyce, could reveal more about him than how he goes to war. Leopold Bloom appears in Ulysses eating or imagine himself eating the inner organs of beasts and fowls. The narrative is intimate with his inner life from the start. Now, what this is all about, right? <laughs> eating what, an egg. Eating an egg, right? Now, what Joyce was saying, right, you can tell a lot about the way a man eats an egg by the way he walks. But what Joyce was trying to do was he was trying to take the narrative, the story, mm. away from the hero to the everyman. And he was explicitly modern in this idea that basically he was saying that the everyman is my hero. So Leopold Bloom was an advertising copywriter. Yeah. Could you think of anything more everyman? He was a salesman, right? And we're going to come back to the salesman because the salesman is key and all this, right? Yeah. But, and he walks around and he meets people and he misses his off at somebody else. And he's got all these, like, he's just like, he's a, the average lad who's having problems in his life, right? Yeah. And in his marriage and everything, right? And Joyce makes him heroic. But part of his heroism is this idea that he was walking around the public space all the time, around the streets, mm. mooching around, slouching, mooching, walking. And the city that Joyce was talking about is this living city. There's no dead spaces. There's yeah. all sorts of good stuff going around. And, of course, it goes all the way back 
because obviously this is called Ulysses because Joyce was obsessed by the Greeks and Greek literature. But if you actually go all the way back, the Greeks made a thing called the Agora, the centre of the city, right? right? And the Agora is what we're talking about. The Agora is the marketplace where people are buying and selling and spoofing and negotiating and bargaining and meeting strangers and interacting yeah. and innovating and all this sort of stuff. Living. Living. It's yeah. the living city. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the Greeks were the first to put this at the centre of the city. Whereas if you go even further back, the Mesopotamians and all those geezers, mm. they always had like the big temple or the garrison yes. or the yeah. king was at the centre, right? The Greeks said, no, nah, no, nah, forget all that stuff. Let's put the market. And therefore the Greek philosophy an idea of life is all about the everyday. So the, the reason I'm talking about this is because commercial activity and life and innovation, trade and buying and selling, right? This is not just commercial, it's philosophical, right? Mm. So what the Greeks were doing, they were putting the everyday life at the centre of Greek ideas. So I'll give you an example. Plato's Republic, the most famous book on Philosophy yeah. from the Greeks, okay? Yeah, yeah. Was written, it opens, like Plato's Republic opens in the home of a metic. And a metic was a foreign-born resident, right? A salesman, traveling salesman, right? right? Just think about this, right? This is going all the way back. And it was situated in Greek, in Athens' port district of Piraeus, right? So what the Greeks were doing, they were saying, philosophy starts with the salesman, with the buying and selling in the port of Greece, not in the place where the kings were hanging out or, or you know, yeah, yeah, up yeah. in the Acropolis. No, 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 down in the port, down the dirty place where people are buying and selling, right? So the Greeks, you know, you know the Greeks have this idea of polis, the polis of metropolis. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the polis was all about politics and the free citizen having a right to determine the future. Now, these are really new ideas at the time. And I think they're all linked to the agora, to the market, to the democracy of the street, which is what Joyce is talking about in Ulysses. Yeah. And there's yeah, no yeah, surprise yeah. that Ulysses is all Greek and that every man is the hero, the average person. So think of that and bring it right back to what we're talking about, that the city is the lifeblood of the society. It's a philosophical place. It's a commercial place. It's an innovative place. And... It means that every zone in the city has to be alive yeah. with people. And I think that this change in the car parks put in this greater idea of what we're trying to do is retake the city away from the metal object called the car. And this can't be a bad thing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was listening to an intercom podcast there during the week. Yeah. And they had a guy on called... Sandy Stein, and he's a retail designer based in the States. And he was talking about this very thing, you know, the reimagining of the city and space. And he talked about the possibilities of, in the future, it's kind of the demise of the, the shopping mall, as we see it now, and more along the lines, as, as you just mentioned about Bonobo and Tesla and that kind of stuff, where particularly in like stuff like grocery stores, might be able to convert their car parks into like a a market garden. It's like an urban farm almost. Like an urban farm. So they're actually supplying themselves with lettuce, with tomatoes, with veg. And they're kind of exploring this whole idea with those kind of vertical hydroponic. The kind of vertical garden idea. Yeah, yeah. which is really bizarre. 
But, you know, this is the way of the future, which means it cuts out on transport and that carbon footprint. That Tesla you're about to buy, you won't be able to go into town with it. Yeah, exactly. You can just be mooching around Bray and around Wicklow in your car. But, you know, I think, but this is, you know, it's funny, you know, John, as I get older, I'm getting jealous Again, I'd love to live again. <laughs> no, really, because I think the future, I think... I think to make some changes in that too. <laughs> Cry- cryogenics. Cryogenic. <laughs> we'll freeze the fucker for a while. But no, but like you think about what's possible in the future. And then you think about our lifetime. And the only thing I can think of is that in our lifetime, bizarrely, not just in Ireland, but all over the West, we declared war on the living city. Think about it. Yeah. Why? Because we were captured by the interest of the car. And the lobbying that was done, I mean, if you look in the United States, for example, the United States had an amazing railroad system Yeah. before the Second World War. And then the car lobbyists got the ear of Eisenhower, said, build superhighways all over the United States and switch from the railway to the car. Mm. Now we, we, I can understand that if you produce these things. Yeah. Slavishly in Ireland, where we never produced a car. Well, that's true. We became captured by the car lobby. And every time we bought a car, the income went to Germany or Britain or wherever, right? And I think if you look at it as a conflict, that we declared war on the city on behalf of the car, Now I think what we're going to do is say the truce is on now, but in the future we are going to jaundice the city towards the living organism, the sort of Greek sense of the agora. And the loser is going to be the car. Do you remember the old characters? You drive into town and you'd be going around kind of Fitzwilliam Square or Marion Square and some head would, would stick his arm out and go, here's here's a spot in here and he'd wave you into the yeah, spot. Called a Lockhart. A Lockhart. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, Lockhart, Lockhart. Lockhart, Lockhart, Lockhart. But you know that story about the guy and he was driving around looking for a parking space and he had this big huge dog in the back of the car, like a big Alsatian or something and Mr. Lockhart comes out and goes, Lockhart, in you go and he parks it and you know you're, you're supposed to give him a, a couple of quid and they look after your car while you yeah, go about absolutely. your business. So your man actually refused to give him a couple of quid. And the Lockhart says, uh, yeah, well, you want someone to look after your car there, mate? And your man says, oh no, I've, I've got the dog in the back. He'll look after, he'll guard it. Yeah, but can he put out fires? <laughs> <laughs> While I have you, John and I put this together with James, as you know, every week. And it's great fun and we're really enjoying it. However, it does cost. It costs a lot. So it would be great if you could support us on Patreon. Now, what you get on Patreon is number one, if you don't like ads, you get no ads. Number two, you get Q&A, which is basically almost like our own little conversation about each episode after the episode. You asked the questions, didn't get that? Explain that a little bit more. I answer on the episode. You also get Every two weeks, a bespoke economics tutorial on an issue, a concept, a theory of economics that you ask me and I answer called Ask Mac. And of course, finally, 
you get all the economic content, all the course, all the lecture notes, all the reading lists on the David McWilliams Global Economics course. So support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.